0: We have been working through the second term of communion for our church, and the first term of communion, just to refresh your memory, is that an acknowledgement of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice and then the second term of Communion, which, which is the one we find ourselves looking at today, <clears throat> concerns our doctrinal standards. And if I can simply locate it here very quickly. to have uh, missing uh, the very page that I need, but it has to do with the fact that our standards are the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. Now, we have been looking at the doctrines contained within our confessional standards, and we have looked at 14 of those doctrines, and we come this evening, and I hope to finish our survey of the doctrinal standards this evening, and we come to the doctrine of the law of God, the law of God, which in our Confession of Faith is chapter 19 of the Confession of Faith. Our confessional standards maintain a very high and exalted view of God's law. God's law is not evil, and God's law is not wicked. God's law is, in fact, a perfect rule of righteousness. His moral law is actually a reflection of God's own holy character. It is holy, just, and good, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. With David, our confessional standards say, "Oh how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. With Paul, our confessional standards ask, Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we make empty the law of God because now we've become Christians? Because we have been saved by grace through faith. Does that end our responsibility and obligation to the law of God? Well, our confessional standards answer, along with the Apostle Paul, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, we proclaim according to his words in Matthew chapter 5. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The words of our Lord make it very clear that we are not finished with our Obligation to the law of God. This moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And it's also summarized in the two commandments given by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first and foremost commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, is like unto the first thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Those are summaries of the moral law of God. Now, the, the confession of faith, just to give a very brief summary of the teaching concerning the law of God from the confession, chapter 19, section 5, says this, The moral law doth forever bind all. That is, binds everyone. Not simply believers. The moral law of God binds all. Binds all humanity. All, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the law in the sense of obligated to obey the law of God. And so the moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, not only because of what the law of God says, the rectitude, the justness of those commandments, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. The law of God bears the very authority of God. It is a reflection, as I said earlier, of his own righteous character. In fact, when we talk about as Christians becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ not only kept all of the moral law of God himself, but he being God is a reflection, or the law is a reflection of his holy nature, and so that if we are being conformed to his image, the image that we are being conformed to then is the moral law of God. He goes on to say, neither doth Christ in the gospel anyway dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. See, our obligation to the moral law of God is not dissolved. It is strengthened because Christ kept it. Because Jesus Christ, in his death, has forgiven us our sins and has imputed to us his righteousness, there is a strengthening of the obligation, if anything not a dissolution of the obligation. And then, let me read just a portion from section 6 of the Confession as well. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. Very important that you realize that distinction. Our obligation to the law of God is not such that we are under it as a covenant of works in order to be justified. We are not declared righteous on the basis of our law-keeping, of our merit, of anything we do. We are justified and declared righteous by God solely upon the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. And so it is not a covenant of works to us any longer. It is a covenant of works, and all of those who are not justified are still under the law as a covenant of works. And because they fail to meet the obligations of the law of God, they are thereby condemned by that law, not justified by it. It goes on to say, Yet is it, that is the law, of great use to them, as well as to others, in that, talking about Christians, in that, as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. So, as a rule of life, it's, we're not under the law as a covenant of works, but we're under the law, or we're obligated to vo- obey it as a rule of life. It is a standard still of God's righteousness, and we're being conformed to this standard. And so there is an obligation on our part to obey it. We can't simply discard and throw it away. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ in the perfection of his obedience. You see, the law of God, not only before we become a Christian, but all throughout our Christian life, continually drives us to Jesus Christ, does it not? When we see our weaknesses, when we see our, our inability to keep it, it continually causes, this, causes us to see that it is only because of Christ that we are declared righteous, that we have uh, a standing before God. And so the law of God continues to, to work by the Spirit of God in our life after becoming Christians. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. And so we see, again, without going into as much detail as I'd like to this evening, that our standards maintain a very high and lofty view of the law of God. There are actually three categories that our confession defines the law into. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the ceremonial law consisting of all of those ordinances of the Old Testament which were types and pictures and shadows of Christ to come. The ceremonial law is abrogated in the New Covenant, according to Hebrews 10.1. And so there's that category of law. There's also the category identified as judicial law. The judicial law of the Old Testament that uniquely concerned the political body of Israel is also abrogated, except for the moral equity of those laws, which does continue. But the specific laws that pertain to Israel as a political body are uh, abrogated. For example, just some examples that uh, uh, the division of the promised land, uh, that would be something that's specifically applied uh, to Israel. Uh, the cities of refuge, the uh, sowing with different types of seed in the same field, which was forbidden, uh, the fencing of a roof. Those were specific laws that pertain to uh, Israel's judicial economy. The moral equity of those laws, for example, just to take the last one I mentioned, the fencing of a roof. The fencing of the roof was because they entertained people. They ate on top of these roofs, and they were to fence them in order to prevent someone from falling and injuring themselves. So it was actually an application of the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. And today we don't do that. Uh, In our particular society, it would uh, seem quite strange to put a fence around our, our roofs, People would wonder, why in the world have you put a fence around your roof? Um, there wouldn't be the same purpose. But we, by, by moral equity, we would say, for example, we had a pool. We are obligated to, to fence that pool in to keep children, to keep uh, 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 people from injuring themselves, uh, falling in. Uh, if you had a huge pit in your yard... Someone could, uh, or a ditch of some kind, to fence that in. So there's a moral equity that pertains to even our situation. But the specific, the specific um, issue at hand of simply putting a um, fence around the roof itself does not apply unless the circumstances, again, would apply, unless we did entertain uh, upon uh, our roofs, unless we had that kind of a situation. <clears throat> the, uh, this particular teaching, uh, confessional teaching on the law of God, condemns antinomianism, which basically teaches that we are not obligated to keep the law of God, that uh, we're no longer under law in any sense, that we are under grace, we have been set free from all law, all moral constraint that is written and recorded in God's word, that we are led by the Spirit of God. It uh, condemns that kind of a uh, teaching. It also condemns legalism, interestingly enough, because the proper teaching of God's law shows that we cannot save ourselves. Properly understood... The law of God drives us to see our desperate need of Christ. And so, properly interpreted, the law of God is also a hedge uh, against legalism, thinking again that we are justified by keeping the law. The next uh, doctrine that I want to look at, and again, there are many questions that you may have uh, um, because it's just an overview, but uh, if you'd like to follow up with some questions afterwards, you're certainly free to do so. The next doctrine is that of Christian liberty, and that's chapter 20 in the Confession of Faith. Christian liberty. Our confessional standards uh, maintain that Christ has purchased for believers Freedom, and we're going to mention ten things. Freedom from ten things. You'll find these listed. These are not original with me. They are found in our Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 1. These are the things, very quickly, that we have freedom from. The guilt of sin. We are no longer guilty because we have been pardoned in our justification. We have been pardoned of all of our sins. Not simply the sins we have committed in the past, but past, present, future. All of our sins have been pardoned in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are free from the condemning wrath of God. God is no longer angry. With us. His wrath has been satisfied. His justice has been completely uh, met in the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So that Christ, again, we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. His condemning wrath is gone forever. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we are set free from the curse of the law. The law, before we were justified, was a curse to us because we were, as I said earlier, under the law as a covenant of works. And those who do not keep every jot and tittle of the law are thereby condemned by the law. But we have been set free because Jesus Christ kept the law in its entirety perfectly for us. Fourthly, we are set free from this present evil world. We have a new home. We have become citizens of heaven. Uh, That is our new home. Uh, This is a a temporary uh, home, but we have an eternal home prepared for us in heaven. Fifthly, we are set free from bondage to Satan. Bondage to Satan. We are no longer held captive to do his will. Sixthly, we are set free from the dominion of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace. The reason that sin shall not have dominion over you is because you are no longer under or you at, before becoming a Christian you were in this situation but you are no longer since becoming a Christian under this situation. You are not under The law, again, as a covenant of works, you're not under the law uh, as an administration uh, of uh, of righteousness that uh, governs and uh, and that condemns uh, you for its violation. You have been set free from that, and so you are now under a covenant of grace. In other words, the the covenant of grace uh, provides what the covenant of works does not provide. The covenant of works does not provide. It provides a holy standard, the law of God. But it does not provide the ability. But the covenant of grace provides and gives freely the ability that we need to follow Christ, to be obedient. And so we're not under the dominion of sin. We're not, seventhly, under the evil of afflictions. We've been set free from the evil of afflictions. Now, when we are afflicted, we do not think God's wrath, God's condemning wrath rests upon me. And it's evident from this affliction. Or it's evident from this particular tragedy or this particular catastrophe that's happened to me. But as a Christian, now I know that all in my life works together for good to all of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Eighthly, I've been set free from the sting of death. I no longer need fear dying because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Ninth, I've been set free from the victory of the grave. The grave no longer holds its power over the redeemed of Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ was raised victoriously from the dead, so will all of those in Christ be raised from the dead on that last day. His own resurrection certifies and guarantees our resurrection. And then finally, we've been set free from everlasting damnation. We've been set free from hell. But the confession of faith mentions two things that we have been set free unto. Set free from these ten things, but we're set free unto two things. And all of the blessings of the new covenant are covered under these two items. We've been set free to enjoy, number one, free access to God. That encompasses our whole salvation, regeneration, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification glorification, everything, free access to God. And then more specifically, we have also been set free to enjoy a willing and loving obedience to God, which more particularly is our sanctification, that we now can please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But now that God has redeemed us, given us faith, Given us eyes to see, given us a will to follow Him, made us alive. We can now willingly and lovingly obey Him. You see, people who are not regenerate cannot willingly and lovingly obey God. The plowing of the wicked is, is sin. Even that which the wicked would do, that's from the book of uh, Proverbs, even that which the wicked would do, which may seem to be a very good thing, working, you know, seems like a very good thing. And and outwardly, I'd rather have certainly a nation full of people working than a nation full of people who are not working. So uh, I'm thankful that that, uh, that even in uh, their unregenerate state. God has not so left man uh, to uh, to wallow in, in in despair, to wallow in uh, um, procrastination and laziness, so that they do not want to work. That's a God's grace as well. But but nevertheless, God has given us an obedience, a desire to obey Him. Now. Concerning this particular doctrine of uh, Christian liberty, again, let me simply read a couple sections. Chapter 20, uh, section 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith, or worship, so that to believe such doctrines, that is so as to believe doctrines that are contrary to God's Word or beside it, or to obey such commandments out of conscience, which would be an, a blind conscience, right? That wouldn't be an informed conscience if you're obeying something that was contrary to the will of God. To obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And so this particular section teaches very clearly that uh, we are our conscience is bound not by the commandments of men, it is bound by the commandment of God. And when men, in places of authority, command us to do what God has forbidden, we must disobey. We cannot comply with unlawful commands, whether it be in church, whether it be in, in uh, the civil realm, or in the family. We cannot comply with unlawful commands. That is to betray liberty of conscience. So liberty of conscience is not simply following whatever someone tells you to do. That's not liberty of conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. You see, again, the conscience is a moral faculty that God has given to us But the conscience is only as reliable as is the standard from which it is getting its information. If the conscience is being informed by the commandments of men which are contrary to the word of God, then it's not reliable at all. But if the conscience is informed by the truth of God's word, then it is reliable. But it's not the conscience that makes it reliable. It's the fact that it's informed by God's truth. And then it says in the third section, They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. This is the end of Christian liberty, listen, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies... Which is what we were all those ten things we were delivered from. That's being delivered from the hands of our enemies. We might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. so that we might not be enslaved to men. In fact, that's what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter seven verse twenty three. The apostle says, Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Don't be enslaved to men. You are now bought with a price which Christ purchased. You are Slaves of Jesus Christ. Don't be enslaved to men. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says, and again the Apostle Paul uh, says, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. We as apostles don't even have dominion over your faith in and of ourselves. It's only the fact that God communicates through us His revelation That's what you obey, not simply because I say I'm an apostle. You don't obey me simply because I say I'm I'm a a pastor or an elder. You follow, again, uh, the law of God. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so this is the truth which set free many, many people uh, during the time Of just prior to the Reformation, the uh, slavery to the papal system which required an implicit faith that one was to obey the church uh, regardless of what they thought about the doctrines or anything like that simply because the church says so. That is not the liberty which Christ has purchased for us. That is to become enslaved to men However, let me qualify very quickly. Biblical creeds and confessions of faith ought to be maintained in churches and in nations. And they ought to be enforced within churches and within nations. Biblical creeds. Those creeds which are agreeable to the word of God ought to be ought to be enforced within churches and nations. This is also the teaching within the same chapter. The same chapter of our confession of faith, it says the same thing. It says in section 4, chapter 20, And because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, God intends that the liberties which Christ has purchased and the powers which God has ordained, the civil magistrate, the leaders of a church, those are mutually to uphold and preserve one another. Not to destroy one another. But they can only mutually uphold one another if the powers that be are legislating that which is agreeable to the Scripture, if the confession is biblical. And it says, They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. So we see that Christian liberty does not, on the other hand, give us the right to either usurp the authority which God has placed in the hand of elders or of a Christian magistrate, or to disobey their lawful commands. We're not, again, saying that Christian liberty means that we become an island to ourselves. All we're saying is that we must submit ourselves to the law of God, to God's word. That is really what the Reformers called a pretended liberty of conscience, to say, in effect, that we do not have to submit when, in fact, we are cherishing an error, a false doctrine, a sin, and we refuse to submit to a biblical confession or creed. That is a pretended liberty of conscience. That is not true liberty of conscience. No one has the right before God to violate his word. No one has the right, I mentioned this this last Lord's Day, and I think it's, it's uh, well worth repeating again, and it I saw it on one of the uh fellows' t shirts uh a fellow that belongs uh, uh as a member of our church says, "How can a moral wrong be a civil right? How can that which is morally wrong be something the government protects as a right a person has? See it can't that which is contrary to the law of God, is no civil right. That which is contrary to the law of God in Scripture is no ecclesiastical right. None of us have the right, under a pretense of Christian liberty, to hold to an error or a false teaching. None of us do. That's not something God grants in our Christian liberty or liberty of conscience. This doctrine condemns antinomianism which would say my conscience is my ultimate law and standard. No, it isn't. God's word. God speaking in the scripture is your ultimate law and standard. Not your conscience. Not your feelings. Not the so-called experts of this world. God alone. And this also condemns legalism which would try to impose standards upon people from the top down when there is no authority from God's word to impose those standards. And so it condemns that kind of legalism. You will obey me because I said so, even though it's contrary to what God says. So it condemns that kind of legalism as well. Okay, 17. This is the 17th doctrine, and it is that of Worship in our confessional standards. Our confessional standards uphold the regulative principle of worship. And the regulative principle of worship is uh, summarized for us in chapter 21, section 1 of the Confession of Faith. And I'll just quote very briefly. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by... God Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture this very clearly limits to what God Himself authorizes in the Word of God as being true worship which He receives. That which He authorizes. Not that which He says nothing about. Silence on a particular matter is not to give us permission to use that in worship. Silence, if God does not say anything about, for example, um, in the New Covenant, uh, using, let's uh, use as an example, incense uh, in a service, or lighting candles in a service. The fact that God does not mention that And the fact that God does not specifically then forbid it does not mean that we have permission to use it. No, the revelation of God for worship is specifically limited to what God prescribes under the New Covenant. We know that... uh, the things which God prescribes under the New Covenant won't be the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant because the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant has been abrogated. And so uh, we find that throughout Colossians and uh, we find that in uh, throughout Hebrews taught. We know that, for example, that therefore incense, sacrifices, candles those types of things not being found in the New Covenant, that they are abrogated by God. We would also put into that category uh, the use of instruments. The use of instruments was something specifically associated with the priesthood, with the temple, with the ceremonial law, The sacrifices, the trumpets were blown over the sacrifices as the sacrifices were offered. And it was only the Levites who played on those instruments. But when we come to the New Covenant, we find nothing at all with regard to the use of instruments as as we find in the Old Testament. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament with regard to worship, there are the instruments. Just look throughout the historical accounts. Look at uh, the, the uh, accounts in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then pass into the historical accounts. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah. And there you find the instruments. But when you come to the New Covenant, nothing That's because it was associated with the Old Covenant and has passed away. All visible representations in all ceremonies not prescribed by God are forbidden. Again, we have no right to use some kind of representation in our worship and to point people to that representation as something of religious significance unless God has specifically authorized it in the New Covenant. Whether it be a cross, whether they be banners, whether they be uh, various kinds of uh, representations, emblems, religious symbols, whatever it may be, if God has not authorized that, or ceremonies, if God has not authorized or prescribed it in the New Covenant, we have no right to offer that by way of worship to God. It is not prescribed or authorized. And therefore, because it's not prescribed, it is forbidden by God. That is the regulative principle of worship. And so, distinctives that we find in our worship services uh, from the confessional standards uh, with regard to uh, at least two items would be that the confession of faith teaches that we should sing psalms without instrumentation. It says specifically, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, not with instruments, not with accompaniment, but with grace in the heart. That's our instrument, our voice. And so, the, uh, uh, this, these are distinctives that follow from the regulative principle and are maintained by our confessional standards. One other thing I would simply mention is that in this chapter, the high view of the Sabbath that uh, we find, that uh, God has ordained that we work six days, that we rest one, even as He Himself created all things in six days and rested the seventh and blessed the seventh day. We find in... In the uh, Ten Commandments, uh, the uh, Sabbath-keeping is uh, the fourth commandment. Uh, Just as the other nine are moral commandments of God, which speak to God's people, so the fourth is as well moral. We find Christ upholds the obligation of keeping the Sabbath. We find the apostles doing the same thing after the resurrection of Christ, the, the Sabbath. Uh, becomes the Lord's day, uh, the uh, day of Christ's resurrection, and so that the day I- of, of uh, Sabbath-keeping becomes the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week. And, uh, and this continues until the coming of Christ. And as you read throughout the New Testament, you find that it was on the first day of the week that they g- gathered uh, together to worship the Lord. This view of, the, of worship condemns, and I'll put it this way, all Arminianism in worship. That is, all of man-centered worship is, cons- is condemned by this view of, the, of worship. All will worship. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses in Colossians 2. All will worship. All worship proceeds from the will, the imagination, the devices of men is condemned. And only that which God commends and prescribes is to be used in worship. The next one is that of lawful oaths and vows. and This is in chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith, chapter 22. Lawful oaths and vows. And just quickly to summarize what is said there, it is lawful, actually let me read uh, before I go on, it's chapter 22, uh, section 1, it says a lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. And um, that's an oath. Then a vow, concerning a vow it says uh, in section 5, a vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath, and ought to be made with like religious care, and to be performed with like faithfulness. Section 6, it is not to be made to any creature, whereas an oath is made uh, with another man. A vow is made directly to God. That's the distinction between an oath and a vow. You take this with another man calling God to be the witness. But in a vow, you make this, you swear directly to God. It is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone and that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscious of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. It is lawful, therefore, to swear on just occasions that which is agreeable to the Scripture. It is lawful to swear that which is agreeable to the Scriptures. However, it is never lawful to swear that which is contrary to the Scripture. Under no circumstance are we to take an oath or a vow that is contrary to the Scripture. Lawful oaths and vows bind the moral person until the ends contemplated are reached until what was vowed or what was uh, taken by way of oath until those ends are reached one is bound by what he has sworn and then just developing that very quickly lawful oaths and vows bind not only the persons taking the oath or vow but may in fact bind the moral person of all posterity as well. In other words, those who take vows themselves can bind their posterity to that particular vow, providing again that what has been sworn is agreeable to the Scriptures. That they're simply swearing a duty which all men owe, but which they are being placed under a special obligation to perform because of the oath or vow taken. And this, just to use as a couple examples from the scripture, uh, in Joshua chapter 9 we find the account of Joshua and the Gibeonites the Gibeonites were supposed to have been destroyed because they were a nation or uh, within Canaan that lived near Israel. And God had commanded all of these nations to be destroyed, but they deceived the Israelites, uh, pretending that they had come from a far-off country. They put on ragged clothes. They, they brought... Uh, uh, bread that was stale, this type of thing, to be able to give the impression that they were actually traveling, traveling a long distance. And they made a covenant with Israel that Israel would not destroy them because they lived at such a far distance. Well, soon after, they realized that these people were really neighbors. They were like in their backyard. Now, probably most people today would have said, Well, <clears throat> Uh, we, were, we took this oath under a false pretense. This is a case of fraud. We're not bound by it. God said, you are bound by this oath and vow. Because it is not sinful, in this particular case, I'm making exception. You must keep this particular vow and oath, uh, even though these people are within your neighborhood, as it were, You cannot destroy them because you have taken this oath and vow. And it was so binding that 500 years later, when King Saul slew the Gibeonites, God brought three years of famine upon David, who succeeded Saul. And the reason given was because Saul slew the Gibeonites. That vow was still binding upon posterity. We also find in Deuteronomy chapter 29, very quickly, in verses 14 and 15, Deuteronomy 29, 14 and 15, the words of Moses, the covenant which God made with Israel. Moses says, Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Those who were yet to be born. Posterity. And so, covenants, vows, oaths do bind posterity when that is, again, included within the oath to, for that purpose. That this is an obligation that is intended to bind all uh, of posterity. For example, national covenants bind all of the, the uh, posterity from that nation until the ends contemplated are reached for generations until the ends are finally reached all of those related, ecclesiastical covenants, whether in the Bible or ecclesiastical covenants in history, if they are agreeable to the Scripture, they bind all of God's Christ Church. Because, again, the Church is not viewed as many separate individuals throughout the world the church of Jesus Christ is viewed as one moral person. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul makes the point that the people of Israel were not a different person than the people of God in the new covenant. They were simply a people of God under a tutor. They were, a, uh, they were like a people under age. But in the new covenant, they've come of age, but they're the same moral person. And so, throughout history, all of God's church is one moral person, so that any covenant that is biblical, that's agreeable to the scripture, binds all of God's people. And so, again, this is, this is the whole basis for infant baptism. That the covenant, now the child can't, uh, at that particular point, understand, believe what's going on, not aware and yet the parents take certain vows before God on behalf of that child, but because those vows are binding in the same way, they continue to bind and to obligate that child to be obedient to the nature of those vows. Now, we'll spend a lot more time on the subject of social covenanting when we get to the fourth term of Communion. But I think that's all we'll have time to for this evening. This doctrine condemns covenant-breaking. It condemns perjury by individuals, churches, and nations. And there is so much covenant-breaking that has gone on in history. And God punishes nations and churches for perjury, not keeping their covenants with God. The next, uh, <clears throat> the next doctrine is that of <clears throat> actually the next three we're going to look at very quickly. The civil magistrate, marriage, and the church. Very, very quickly. And uh, uh, lawful oaths and vows are applied in three spheres of jurisdiction. They're applied in the civil realm. They're applied in the marriage and the family. And they're applied in the church. And so that's why in the confession of faith, you find immediately following lawful oaths and vows, you find the three spheres of jurisdiction where these uh, oaths and vows are applied. And so the civil magistrate is the first one. Uh, The civil magistrate, uh, just very, very summary form, uh, is limited in his authority. No civil magistrate has unlimited authority. He is in fact to rule on behalf of God and therefore because he is limited and to rule on behalf of God he is obligated to kiss the Son. He is obligated to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as his own God, as his Savior, as his Redeemer. Every civil magistrate is obligated to do so according to Psalm 2. And that means, uh, just to fill that out, what does it mean to kiss and worship the sun? For, uh, for a civil ma- magistrate to do so? Well, it certainly implies uh, a few things. It implies that he is to establish civil laws that conform to the laws of Scripture. He's not to rule a contrary to the law of God. It also implies that he is to support and defend the true Christian religion. He is, to, he is to be a nursing father to the church of Jesus Christ. How does he do that? How does he become a nursing father to the church of Jesus Christ? Does he usurp authority over the church? No. That's condemned in Scripture. But he does so by, by establishing through the church. The church meets, they establish a, a creed as was done in the 17th century, Westminster divines were gathered together. The Westminster standards were uh, were established, approved. A civil magistrate establishes a national creed, says this is the creed of this nation. This is what this nation believes about these truths. He supports them. He defends these truths. He establishes a church that, that accurately represents the true Christian religion in its most pure form. He establishes a church that becomes the church of that nation, just as you had the Church of Scotland. Uh, in fact, all of the Reformed churches uh, from, the, from the time of the Reformation uh, established uh, churches Uh, within their nations, or within their provinces. Um, There were established churches. There weren't a multitude of different churches within that particular realm, uh, but rather one established church. That is uh, the carrying out of the Reformed faith and of, uh, of Presbyterianism. And the civil magistrate would because he's not a pluralist because he's established one confession of faith he's established the true Christian religion anyone who would subversively undermine or seek to overthrow the truths contained within those documents or that one true Christian religion would be severely punished if they maintained that kind of an antagonistic and hostile view to undermine, to subvert those teachings. That's kissing the sun. You can't hardly say that you're kissing the sun when you're allowing wickedness and evil and false teaching to run rampant all around you. How is that honoring the sun? That's dishonoring the sun. He does not, however, have the power of the keys. The power of the keys are given to the officers of the church, not to the civil magistrate. He has been given the the power of the sword, not the power of the keys. And we are obligated to obey only the lawful commands of the civil magistrate, that is, biblical commands, those which conform to Scripture. And then finally, a Christian magistrate may lawfully call his subjects to enter into a national covenant, providing that it is biblical. This condemns, this doctrine condemns uh, pluralism in all of its rampant form. Uh, this idea that uh, the, moral, the more pluralistic that we become, the more that we tolerate, shows how big-hearted we really are. Uh, See, the Lord Jesus makes no bones about it. He says, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I hate false teaching. See, that ought to be the attitude not only of us as individuals, not only of the church leaders, but of any Christian who is serving as a magistrate. I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, of all false teachers. The second sphere of jurisdiction is that of marriage, and I don't have time to go into uh, the the doctrine of marriage tonight. Um, You'll uh, you'll find that uh, if you're interested in chapter 24 of the Confession of Faith. The third sphere of jurisdiction is that of the church, where uh, vows and oaths and vows apply. Let me just say this about the doctrine of the church. The invisible church um, refers to all of God's elect, all of those who are truly regenerate. The visible church uh, refers to all of those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. The visible church refers to all of those throughout the world who profess the true religion and their children. Concerning the visible church, the visible church is not necessarily defined by a church building, by a minister, or by ordinances. In other words, you can have members of the true visible church who are worshiping at home because they can't worship anywhere else because there are no uh, churches that are faithful to the truth. That can be nevertheless, because that's the definition, that's precisely why we find that definition. It does not say that the true or that the visible church is that where there is a minister, where there are ordinances uh, being given out. That, however, is the ideal. Certainly, that's what we should have. It says unto this in the uh, uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 25, section 3, unto this Catholic visible church Christ hath given the ministry, oracles and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. However, again, due to apostasy, uh, due to persecution, uh, Elijah uh, cried out to the Lord. Uh, He thought he was the only one. Uh, And God reminded him that 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. But he thought he was the only representation of the visible church in all of Israel at that time. The only head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the only form of church government authorized by Jesus Christ by divine right is that of Presbyterianism. That sounds quite, maybe to some, uh, quite a dogmatic statement, but uh, uh, that uh, I am convinced and our Confession of Faith teaches, our standards teach, that Presbyterianism ruled by elders, not by bishops. Ruled by elders, both teaching elders and ruling elders, qualified to serve in that particular capacity. These are those who should rule on behalf of Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, bishops' uh, power finding its place in one man ruling over uh, either one church or ruling over se- uh, several churches, or you get to the uh, the popish uh, form where one bishop, the pope, rules over the whole visible church throughout the whole world it is not taught in the Scripture. Jesus Christ is alone the head of the church and he's entrusted and given his authority to rule his church into the, into the hands of elders. Uh, elders who rule in graded courts, uh, graded courts meaning at the local level, the session, the elders at the local congregational level, who are therefore uh, united with other churches and form a presbytery and the presbytery, then the elders and within the presbytery rule over the churches within the presbytery, and then a synod above that, and then a general assembly above that. and so that there are courts of appeal, and so that there is more wisdom uh, that comes to God's people uh, rather than simply one man being expected to be able to, to have all wisdom. All knowledge to, to be able to rule the church, uh, that uh, uh, this comes in the form of, of uh, elders who rule uh, on behalf of Christ. And we'll consider this subject in more detail uh, next time as we talk about the form of church government as the uh, third term of uh, communion. This condemns, this doctrine condemns rule by bishops. And it condemns all disconnected independency. Churches should be striving to be connected with other churches. That's what, again, uh, the oneness of the church is all about. If we can't have some kind of visible expression of what it means to be one, uh, then uh, really Christ's body is fragmented. Independency is not the ideal uh, that is a fragmentation, a division within the body, but rather the ideal is that of Presbyterianism, ruled by elders, graded courts, all connected. And ideally, within one nation, and not even limited to one nation, but we believe, and I believe the Reformers believed, that this would be, during the millennial period, the form that would be exemplified when Christ reigns from heaven over his his, uh, uh, people during that glorious period of time where all churches will hold one faith, not many faiths. They'll all be connected together by rule. And then finally, the last thing, very quickly, is that of the doctrine of resurrection and judgment. Confession of faith concerning eschatology is very brief in one sense. Uh, we could amplify it, uh, uh, I'm sure, but uh, just for the sake of time, teaches that there will be one final and general resurrection at Christ's coming, not two or more, one final and general resurrection. Not a secret resurrection or rapture, but one general resurrection. At Christ's coming. Secondly, it teaches one final and general judgment, not many judgments, not a judgment seat of Christ uh, in heaven and then a judgment down on her, uh, earth and then a judgment of the nations and uh, however many uh, that uh, some have found, but one final and general judgment on the last day for both the righteous and the wicked. And so this uh, teaches. Uh, Uh, This teaching in the Confession of Faith and our Catechisms condemns uh, a very prevalent view, uh, that of premillennialism, Uh, that premillennialism is not a biblical doctrine. It is a false teaching, and it is not in conformity to the Word of God because premillennialism premillennialism posits uh, at least two resurrections, and at least two judgments, and oftentimes three, four, five resurrections or judgments. But the Bible teaches one final and general resurrection and judgment. All right, that uh, took a little longer than I expected, but we are finished with the second term of communion. Do you have any, uh, um, and we probably should make it, uh, somewhat brief our question and answer time, um, but if you have any questions that you'd like to uh, uh, to ask, I'll certainly entertain those at this time. Yeah, go ahead, Rich.
1: You mentioned the term moral person. Could you explain that? bit
0: the the moral person uh, being that. Uh, in covenanting that those things which are particular to a nation, for example, I'm thinking of the of the um, of the um, national covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant uh, in uh, England and Scotland. There were specific details within those covenants that that per- pertained to. A historical situation, a monarchy, uh, particular kings, um, certain things that were especially pertinent to them that are not necessarily uh, pertinent to us. We no longer live in a monarchy. Uh, Things like this. We are not uh, uh, within the national boundaries of, uh, say, Scotland, uh, ourselves in particular uh, right now. Uh, in other words, the geographical ba- boundaries of Scotland are uh, just above England. Uh, we live in Canada. Uh, there is a relationship uh, that we can draw between these nations, but, but uh, there are very specific geographical uh, lines uh, that, uh, that are there. Um, uh, so these particular uh, specific details which pertain to these kingdoms uh, are not of the moral equity of the, of the covenant. That which is of moral equity is that which is biblical, that which uh, is of a moral nature, which transcends um, um, the fact that we're not within the geographical boundaries of, of Scotland. But we are, nevertheless, related to Scotland because we're related, as I said, it was one church. There is one moral person in the church. Um, there is not many uh, churches as to the visible church. Uh, that which pertains to the Church of Jesus Christ in the Old Covenant um, and is of moral equity pertains to the Church of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. That which pertains to the Church of Jesus Christ in Scotland in these covenants pertains to the Church of Jesus Christ in Canada and in the United States in all the other churches. And so uh, the moral equity, the moral person, uh, pertains to that which is biblical uh, and w- which is of a moral nature, which is not limited uh, in some narrow way to the circumstances of that particular uh, time. Yes, go ahead, she. Uh,
1: I was wondering about... Um when you're talking about the swearing of um, when like you're in court and the judge asks you to you put your hand on the Bible right. and swear on the Bible, is that um, proper? I always kind of thought that was kind of
0: proper. I don't know, I just didn't feel right about that. Well, I think the, the question is the question has to do with the, um, whether it's lawful to uh, swear uh, in a court of law. Uh, and uh, upon a Bible, and I think that uh, uh, one issue has to do with the the uh, uh, civil government, the kind of civil government in appearing at, I, either as a juror or as a witness. Um, the kind of civil government that uh, that is um, uh, in power at that particular time is it a civil government? For example, as a juror, can you can you really? Um, follow the laws of the land because it is a truly constituted uh, country based upon the law of God. And uh, there, are, there are those kinds of things that would, I think, forbid someone from taking uh, law. Uh, what might in other circumstances be a lawful oath or vow, but would prohibit them from being able to do so in that kind of a situation. Um, uh, I think that, again, upon just occasions that we can be called to to swear an oath by a civil magistrate, whether by a judge or, um, or by a king or whatever, a prime minister. Uh, we can be called to do so, but it has to be a just occasion and uh, uh, the right circumstance, not just anything that, uh, that uh, a magistrate would have us to swear to.
1: actually put your hand in the Bible and swear on it, like the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, shouldn't that be good enough? Like, isn't that kind of holding up a book as an idol, rather than, like, the living word of God?
0: Yeah, I think that there's no example that I'm aware of in the Scripture where uh, anyone took an oath or a vow with their hand upon the Bible, and I I don't know of anything uh, to that effect. I think that the oaths and vows that were taken were taken verbally uh, to God, and uh, and uh, so uh, I guess I I would be of a mind to say that that would be uh, the the way in which would be most conformable to what we find in the Scripture is to take that directly to God and um, um, and to swear in His name. Reg.
1: Where that oath, if you be recognizing certain situations would be a just occasion, if you be recognizing the constitutionality of temporary emergency that is legally constituted or occurs, mm-hmm. you could, you, know, you like, you, you, is
0: that what
1: you were driving
0: at, Mr. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was saying that it would have to be the right circumstance with the right government The right constitution and power before you could actually take such an oath or a vow. Yeah. Are there any other uh, questions? Yes, go ahead. All right. Speak up just a little bit so we get it on the In terms of
1: Christian liberty, uh, especially. uh, civil and ecclesiastical authorities, is there ever a case uh, where they tolerate
0: sin? No, Christian liberty uh, can never be used to tolerate error or sin. It can never be used, that's an abuse of Christian liberty, to tolerate error or sin. Um, doesn't mean, Christian liberty does not mean that that as soon as you identify that someone has sinned or is in error, doesn't mean that the axe falls all in one uh, uh, all at one time. Uh, Christian liberty certainly allows within it working with people, patience, uh, seeking to to instruct them, teach them, um, to see them um, uh, come to a knowledge of the truth in in regard to. Uh, um, practice or, or belief, but it but it does mean that you cannot tolerate it in the sense of saying we'll just continue to agree to disagree on this particular issue. Christian Liberty does not allow that kind of thing. Yes, Shane.
1: Um, but does not Christian Liberty uh, not so much tolerate, but have grace for ignorance?
0: Yes. Christian liberty has great with regard to ignorance. That's there. There must be when someone is simply ignorant of what they're doing, as being either sinful in their actions, their their the behavior, speech, uh, attitudes, whatever, or in something that they uh, believe. Uh, and if it's in error, and they're just ignorant that it's that it's an error. Yeah, the leaders certainly are obligated to again work with that person, I don't consider that to be tolerant of the evil, it's a question of simply, as you said, graciously working with uh, the uh, person uh, to come to a more enlightened understanding of what God says. Now, after working with the person, if that person becomes obstinate, refuses to believe the truth, after a period of time there does come from that church discipline. And so there, there does uh, ultimately follow that, but it certainly is down the road uh, after the person refuses to hear what is the truth uh, that's being given to him.
1: I was thinking in the case of the civil magistrate that uh, uh, could the civil magistrate tolerate public expression of Roman um, Catholicism, policy, uh, policy uh, independency in the church?
0: Could the civil magistrate tolerate prelacy, Roman Catholicism, or independency within the church? Right.
1: Not
0: if, not if he uh, is uh, a Christian magistrate um, who is, is uh, uh, ordering his nation according to the law of God, because again, the, the law of God does not teach any of those particular systems of church government, it teaches Presbyterianism as the only divine uh, rule uh, within the church. And so he could no, long, he could no more tolerate that difference in, in uh, uh, church government than he could tolerate Arminianism, than he could tolerate uh, any other false uh, doctrine uh, to be uh, practiced uh, and uh, within, within his nation. And so I think that uh, um, uh, pluralism in all of its forms would, uh, would certainly be weeded out uh, by, by such a uh, magistrate. You're
1: saying the notion, North American notion of what term freedom and liberty is really a form of apostasy
0: the the notion of yeah the the notion of I keep repeating what you're saying so that we get it on the tape uh, the notion of uh, freedom um, that we find in the North American thought today is really uh, an expression of apostasy and yeah it, 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 it's not it's not true Christian liberty it's not liberty of conscience that's not what uh, the scripture the, again the liberty of conscience never can be used to maintain any error. It can never be used to maintain and to uphold any sin. Uh, A moral wrong cannot be a civil right. That which is contrary to to the law of God cannot be something that is maintained by the civil government, promoted by the civil government.